but sweaty naked people with knives isn't enough for you? What do you what do you uh, Well, yeah, you throw in the porn mustaches. <laughs> and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode five of season three of Stars End Podcast. Today we're going to take Harry and Doors all the way to the end of their stay in Mycogen, and we're going to get some weird scenes and some great revelations, lots to talk about. So let's get right to it. Unfortunately, we don't have any new news on the Apple Plus TV show season two like we had last time which is very exciting and uh, we're all on the edge of our seats. I'd love to get a date out of these guys. Like give us a, give us like a September, 2022 or something like that. You know, I, wouldn't that be nice if we had that? Uh, I'd settle for late, set, uh, I'd f- settle for late 2022. I, I guess the rumor is that it's late, late 2022 or early 2023, which really is like nothing, right? That's like not a promise of anything at all. Plus it's dilatory. Come on, give it, give it to us in July. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> you don't have to yeah. finish the whole season before That's you start. Right. Before That's you right. start the, the, and the effects aren't that important. Come on. <laughs> just send us the scripts. We just, we'll right. just read the scripts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this, this time, Harry is going to decide with much more that he wants to get the history of the Mycogenians. He decides that there's there's probably some important stuff he can learn from their history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And he decides that he wants Raindrop, what is it, Raindrop 43 and Raindrop 45 to take him to see the micro farms. Uh, we get uh, they, the Raindrops bring Doris and Harry some kirtles to put on so they can look like they actually belong in mycogen. Harry browbeats the Raindrops for some strange reason. I, I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Like they try to give him the kirtle and he refuses, or they try to give Doors the kirtle to give it to him. And he refuses. He's like, you have to give it directly to me. You've got to speak to me. And Doris is very upset about this. And, and they have an argument about how he's browbeating them. And he says, I have to do it because I need to get the information out of them. And at, at one point they have a long talk about, about religion and are the, are the, the Mycogenians following a religion and which they appear to be to us. Like we look at them as the space Amish, you know, when we think they're religious, uh, we're going to find out the truth behind that a little bit later. 
Um, and there's this idea that they discover that most religions have a sacred book and Harry wants to get his hands on the book so that he can find out all the legends. Um, and so he, he gets one of the raindrops, the older raindrop to take him on a tour of the micro farms where they grow the, the yeast. And uh, although I guess women aren't supposed to talk to men in public, she kind of drops that. And, uh, you know, she, he says, I guess you guys don't know that much about the farms after all. And they get very defensive. We're like, no, no, we've worked on the farms. Everybody works on the farms. We're going to, we're going to take you and we're going to show you how great the farms are. Because it turns out that the, the yeast that they grow is better than any yeast anywhere. And it's the only food that the emperor eats. And probably they're only giving the lowest quality yeast you know, for export, they're probably eating the best stuff themselves. We go to the micro farms, we see them, they're, they're wonderful. They get these like, I guess, sort of like candies almost, right? That they, that they start eating. What is it that initiates this? Like, like Raindrop gets all upset about something. I can't remember what it is, but she's, she gets all, she gets, I mean, it's religion. It's religion. Harry asks her about religion and she gets very insulted at the idea that anyone would think that the Mycogenians are religious. They have something better than religion. They have history. And she's so upset that she has to go into one of these little sheds they have conveniently placed around for people to rest. And Harry goes in there with her. And what happens in there, man, I, I, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> shocked by this scene, which I read first read, you know, decades ago where uh, Harry says, Harry tells her the truth. I want the book. And she says she'll give it to him. On one condition, she wants to play with his hair. And he takes off the skin cap and she runs her hands through his hair and she's getting, you know, she's into it. She's she's licking her fingers and smelling his hair. And oh my God. <laughs> it was. Wow. You know, we don't get a lot of direct sex scenes in asthma. We get some, but. That's one of the weirdest. That's got to be the weirdest Asimov sex scene that has ever happened, right? Yeah, and there was—I mean, there was nothing in it that—that that is legitimately what we would call sex, except that it was written. No. It was written in such a way that it obviously was like, and not just sex, but very pervy sex, right? There was something like raindrop is very pervy. Raindrop is just she is being described in a way that you know touching the hair like even as a reader you feel like somehow all of a sudden like playing with someone's hair is the most i had to go take a shower after reading <laughs> that, that, uh... <laughs> well you know i'm i'm thinking after that that you know all of the sex shops in mycogen must just be full of wigs right and that, that's just the wig shop <laughs> and finally after all of that is over she does give him the book and it's a it's an interesting book it's a print book but the print scrolls. So there's more than a page on a page. It's in two languages. We later find out like ancient, whatever the Mycogenian spoke and current galactic standards so that it can be read. Uh, Harry brings it back to uh, back to doors and tells her the whole story. <laughs> um, and she says, you're never going out alone again. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if somebody had stumbled on that scene, which was a, you know, good point like what would have happened then i thought it was kind of funny that harry they decide not to read the book immediately they're going to get some sleep get some rest and harry instead of putting the book on like a nightstand he actually takes the book and puts it under his pillow 
And Doris is like, what, you don't trust me that I'm, I'm not going to read the book without you? And Harry's like, no, I, it's my book. My book, you can't have it. Which is just the, the, the impression we get of Harry is just so strange. And, and again, we, we've talked about this before. But it's, it's odd how Asimov wrote Harry, but there you go. And then Harry actually wakes up in the middle of the night and starts reading the book. He and Doris discuss it. Um, and he discovers a bunch of things. And this is where we get kind of a, a, a direct throwback to, to the Caves of Steel and, and the Naked Sun where it turns out that the Mycogenians legend is that they are descended from the people of the planet Aurora, which was one of the 50 spacer planets in those, those books uh, where Lige Bailey and Daniil Oliva uh, at some point, they, uh, Daniil, Daniil is Auroran, although he was constructed on earth and uh, Elijah does have to go to Aurora uh, at, at I guess in uh, in Robots of Dawn, he goes to Aurora to solve a crime and save the universe. And so uh, we we see all these fragmentary legends of references back to uh, back to Aurora. So there's Asimov directly linking the Foundation series to to that series. I guess if you look at the sequels, he had already done it, but now you know we get an explicit reference back. And Harry discovers the concept of robots, which was something new. And he gets the idea in his head, and, and the book seems to lead this way, that there is at least one robot still alive from that pre-imperial time 20,000 years ago. And Harry's all excited because he thinks, if I could talk to that robot, he could tell me about what the galaxy was like 20,000 years ago, when maybe there was only one planet, one inhabited planet. Uh, that's another part of the Auroran story, by the way, is that they are the origin planet of the human race. Uh, which, of course, we know that's not true. But anyway, so and, and Harry has a conversation with Cheddar Hummond about that, about uh, talking to a 20,000 year old robot. Irony, irony, irony. Anyway, <laughs> so Harry gets the idea that there must be a sacred building that a, pl a place like Mycogen must have. And, and Doris finds out from the raindrops when she goes shopping with them that they do. They have a building called the Sacratorium. And Harry wants to go to the Sacratorium because in addition to this idea that that there is a, a living robot that's 20,000 years old. He thinks it's inside the Sacratorium and he wants to get in there and see it and talk to it. We can tell that's not going to end well. Anyway, Harry and Doors, I guess they go on a bus ride to, uh, to where the Sacratorium is. Um, they see it. They sit down on a park bench and they talk to a, an older gentleman named Mycelium 72, I believe, mm -hmm. who uh, says he's a scholar and, and, uh, and he's read the books of the, of the tribesmen. That's what they call the non-Mycogenians. They have a nice long conversation with him about, about the Sacratorium. They discover the existence of a, of a thing called the Irie, which is where the, uh, where the masters, the see the elders can go in. And, uh, and Harry gets excited. He wants to get in there and, and see that. Then they're confronted by, uh, they're confronted by an elder who tells them they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be talking to, uh, they shouldn't be talking to Mycelium 72. They should go home immediately. And, uh, you know, they're lucky that he's letting them go. And, uh, you know, once again, uh, Harry pulls out his relationship with Sunmaster 14, his, you know, I know the manager kind of thing that, that uh, allows them to get out of there. But they, they leave, but they're going to come back. And they have the genius idea that they can dress as elders so that they'll be allowed into the sacratorium and upstairs. So Doris goes out and buys the special kirtles that the elders wear. Doris is going to pose as a man because who could tell the difference anyway? Once they're all bald and wearing long robes, they go back to the sacratorium. 
They go in through the library. Nobody notices them. They go into the sacratorium, which is basically like a museum with little video screens around the walls where they go and they hear stories about Aurora. They actually see robots working in the fields. Harry's all excited. They find a door. They go through the door. There's kind of the, uh, the teacher's lounge in there where they can they can sit down and there's a fridge and some comfortable sofas, right? And a staircase upstairs. They go upstairs, they open the door, and there is the robot. Unfortunately, it's a dead robot. It's, it's not a, a human-like robot, which was, by the way, one of the things that Harry had thought from reading the book, that not only was the robot 20,000 years old, but it was humaniform. And uh, this one is not. It's, it's sort of metal. It has glowing eyes, but it's, it's just frozen in place. And waiting for them there in the Eyrie is Sunmaster 14, the leader of the Mycogenians, who reveals to them uh, a whole bunch of stuff like, we knew what you were doing the whole time. The whole thing with the hair, that was all set up. Uh, we knew you were buying elders' curdles. We knew that you didn't respect us. We knew you were going to commit all these crimes. How stupid do you think we are? I actually found it kind of gratifying. You know, like that, that Sunmaster 14 was like, yeah, you know, you, you think we're so dumb just because we walk around bald and with and with robes. We, we saw everything you were doing. Do you think you could get on a bus in downtown Mycogen and everyone on the bus wouldn't know that you were tribesmen? Like we can tell he's going to have them executed. <laughs> he's actually going to have them executed when who should arrive to save the day but Cheddar Humman. And he talks Sunmaster 14 into allowing them to leave uh you know Sunmaster 14 was like well we'll turn them over to the emperor and let him do what he wants and cheddar is like no 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 we can't turn them over to to demerzel and the emperor that would be bad because they're gonna you know they'll get a hold of psychohistory and he explained psychohistory to Sunmaster 14 what if harry really does invent psychohistory and then does something to change this terrible future that we think the empire is going to have and somehow he does something really great for the mycogenians isn't that worth that small percentage probability isn't that worth letting them go. And for unexplained reasons, Sunmaster 14 kind of goes, yeah, oh, sure. Why not let them go? And they managed to escape. And I guess at the end, they're trying to figure out where in the world can we go with this idiot, Harry Seldon, that he's not going to get in trouble and, and blow everything up. And that's it. That's the story. Uh, what did you guys think of, of, of this story? Well, could, uh, Mycogen continues to be a, a fascinatingly weird place oh, weird. So uh, weird. and i i love it at, at the same time as i find it bizarre and repelling i mean it's one of the more interesting places that asimov describes in in his works uh it's certainly one of the more oddball cultures that we get a view at one thing that kind of bugs me i mean like i i know what you mean about it feeling good that they Sunmaster 14 reveals that they're not such dopes after all but this this happens by revealing that they're that they're essentially some kind of surveillance state, uh, <laughs> which you know before you know I thought like okay this sounds like a kind of description of a you know an oddball religious community you know now now I'm thinking it it sounds more like a you know a kind of smaller authoritarian socialist republic uh, in the in the 80s somewhere. Mm where yeah all like a any foreigner is going to be tracked relentlessly yeah. if you, as soon as as soon as you come in the country but uh in terms of the larger themes 
I mean, eventually it's going to be interesting in that, you know, part of the whole direction this novel is going is giving Harry a view at uh, different kinds of societies and what that means for psychohistory. I'm not sure that the, um, that it makes sense in terms of being all that useful for psychohistory at the moment. I'm kind of left wondering at the end of this episode, why, why did we come here again? <laughs> what was yeah. all this about? Yeah, um, oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so it, it, you know, it, it continues to fascinate me at the same time as I find it's deeply weird and kind of inexplicable in terms of the larger direction that the novel is supposed to be going in. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that if you look at the uh, foundation and foundation and empire, particularly, they, they look clearly like collections of short stories mm-hmm. where something happens, some conflict is set up in the story and then it's resolved through some clever action by somebody yeah. or in the, in the robot novels, you know, where there's, or, or it's particularly an iRobot, which really is a collection of short stories, like some clever application of the three laws of robotics solves the, solves the case. Yeah. Here, we're not getting that. This is much more of like a travelogue or, mm. or like the, the word I like is picaresque, you know, where, where you, you go from yeah. place to place and have an experience. Um, but there, there is very little like mysterious story. There's a little bit of one. Like who are, who are the Mycogenians really? But it's really just like a sort of a series of events to advance the story. It's not a self-contained story itself. And I think, I actually think the, the book suffers from that. Mm. That you don't get that kind of conflict and resolution. You know, that's fun. And then new conflict and resolution. I, I like that about Foundation. Yeah, I, the, the word picaresque is interesting. I, I'd never thought of it in those terms before. I, uh, I just but, like saying that. But, it makes me but, sound really well, intelligent. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's not Don Quixote, but it's, it is, it is a very, it, you're right that there is a, this kind of weird picaresque element to it, right? That, uh, you know, he, it's just, it is sort of this sort of tour of the different regions of Trantor. And at the end, we're, you know, we're going to get it sort of tied up in a bow why he had to go through all this, but I'm not, I'm not sure it's entirely convincing. We can have that discussion when we get to the end of the book. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it is very much, you know, this, it can be broken down into this sort of series of vignettes. And this, this is, I think the weirdest among them. <laughs> Oh, weird can be good. Yes. Well, yeah, I, I like weird. I like weird. It it's just that liking weird doesn't keep it from being weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do like the way he kind of subverts the idea that these people are this backward, primitive, cult-like group of people, and therefore they're idiots. Uh, I think he just he still leaves them as the backward, primitive, cult-like people, but just not idiots. You know, they're, they're, they they could see what was going on. Uh, but they are. It, it's just a very strange kind of group of people living in, you know, 20,000 years in the future. Very xenophobic, very insular. I mean, you know, one of, at one point, Sunmaster 14 says that there are only 70 skin caps in the entire Mycogen region. And there's a couple of million people in Mycogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, only 70 foreigners uh, and yet the mycogenians would instantly spot a foreigner i thought that that might have been like most mycogenians would probably never see one yeah in their lives yeah um, but okay fine they, they they can immediately spot one yeah it's hard to see where where he was going with all this and 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 throughout 
Harry continues to be just this objectionable person. You know, the, <laughs> we, we've talked about, you know, all the sexualization and stuff. And in this chapter is the infamous bet that he makes with Doors, where um, Harry has decided that uh, it's possible that like the Aurorans, the Mycogenians might have extremely long lifespans, two or 300 years. And of course, it turns out they don't. Uh, but he bets doors that the raindrops will not tell him how old they are. And the stakes that he proposes is a roll in the hay if you oh my are God. willing. It's <laughs> like, Asimov, what are you doing? <laughs> and she bats that away to her credit. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to think about the likelihood that Asimov himself ever made use that line on someone. Because I think it's probably, <laughs> I think it's probably very high probably very high and the story that doors tells to illustrate kind of shifting mores in in in, in how they're situational the infamous hand on thigh story which um as well proposes as a major event in the development of psychohistory where doors says that on her planet um, when they go to the beach they wear very skimpy bathing suits and that someone she was a man she was talking to like ca casually put his hand on her thigh which by the way who does that at the beach but whatever whatever you, you pull back a stump you do that i think <laughs> but anyway she doesn't care he doesn't care there's no there's no connotation to it but later on at dinner she to illustrate a point i guess like hikes up her dress and says go ahead put your hand on my thigh and he can't bring himself to do it in that setting and uh, i get what the point of that story has to do with the, again the, the shifting of mores that in one setting you might be okay with it and in another you might not and yet it's a it's a very odd story it's a very odd way to illustrate that and uh, and he makes such a big deal about it you know and it yeah you know I, I like uh, i can't deal with this i mean it, to me to me it, it feels like the kind of story that someone of asimov's generation such as asimov might asimov. might tell in order to indicate, oh, my putting my hand on your thigh was perfectly innocuous, young woman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I just, I don't even want to think about that. But, I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I guess it, if, if, if this were really great art, one, one can excuse the use of terrible things as a transformation into art. I think it's not quite great art, this novel, <laughs> in my mm. book. It is, it is fun, and at least I'm willing to, you know, in the, for my own needs as a fan, I just kind of have to kind of bracket all that stuff and ignore it and, and try to get on with the more enjoyable parts of the, uh, the novel. I do think that this, this section, especially the airy, we we get a lot of kind of Asimov fan servants, right? I mean, this is, I think, except maybe for the very ending of the book, the place where we get the closest and most thorough connection to the robot novels. We essentially get the story of Aurora and the 50 spacer worlds in miniature, so that everyone who has read those previously will kind of, you know, your eyes light up and you'd say, aha, yes, I know this place, the world of the dawn, right? right? And at the same time, you know, I, I think the one thing that struck me reading it for the first time, having read the robot 
novels previously was that the Mycogenians are considerably different from the Aurorans, even though they apparently trace their ancestry back there. But they don't, they don't at all behave in the way that spacers do. Population density is much higher. <laughs> They're doing without robots. And, and so in some ways, even though what, what isn't said in this fan service is almost as important as what is said, in that, you know, we're left to infer that, you know, there, there is some power in history of the, the notion that group identity can be preserved, even though the entire kind of content of that identity could get swapped out over the course of 20,000 years. It's just sort of a, an interesting uh, kind of side note that Asimov isn't often very subtle, but I think this was done rather subtly. I think it's an excellent point that he could very easily have made them people who were recognizably reminiscent of Aurorans yeah. and the fans yeah. would go, oh, I see that, you know, and, and he didn't. He said, okay, yeah. well, over 20,000 years, like they've changed completely. They are nothing like the Aurorans. Um, you know, I, I think we did yeah. see in in uh, the sequels, which obviously were written first, there, there are also references to the spacer worlds. And uh, particularly the Solarians mm -hmm. uh, really haven't changed. In, in well, they've changed physically, but but their society hasn't yes. changed in the 20,000 yeah. years. Yes, but in here in the prequel, we you're mm -hmm. right, that's an excellent point. He, he really changed them completely, and yet they maintain that that sense of identity in history in some ways. Just maybe mm -hmm. it was a little bit of a lost opportunity that he didn't tell us more about how they got to how they got to be the, the Mycogenians and, you know, they produce the best yeah. food in the galaxy. That's their way of surviving and staying together. But, you know, but sometimes you're right. Sometimes what you don't say is just as important or more important as what you do. And he leaves open this speculation, like, wow, I wonder how, how do they, how do they get from Aurora to Trantor and stay and stay intact? It, it is a, it is interesting. And, and maybe it is better that it was left un, unsaid. Yeah. Well, I think a, a thing that I was hoping that he would cycle back to is the notion that the Mycogenians are absolutely a religion. I mean, they, they, they protest that they're not a religion, but they are absolutely a religion, right? I mean, they have this thing that has, you know, so they hearken back to Aurora. Aurora is their basic myth, uh, but it's so mythologized that, yeah, right. I mean, it, it's hard, barely recognizable. Right? I think and, he's doing um, two things at the same time there. One of them is I think he's basically doing a kind of a cheap literary twist where we look at it and go, well, of course it's a religion. And he's like, ha ha, I fooled you. It's not a religion. It's exactly the opposite of a religion. But the other thing, which maybe is a little more subtle that I think he probably was doing on purpose was to say that a religion doesn't need to be supernatural, that this kind of insular and, and, and uh, stagnant behavior that they're, that they're engaging in religious like behavior, you know, you don't, you don't really need the supernatural trappings. You can, you can get stuck in that anyway even without the religious stuff. And I, I think that that was an interesting point. And I'm going to give him credit and say that he meant it that way. So I think he meant both of those things, both the, the cheap twist and also the, see, you know, it can be this really, because you're right, Joseph, it, it absolutely is. Religious. Yeah. I mean, if you, um, you look at the actual ending here, yeah, the, on some level, the ending is the Mycogenians are not, you know, the country bumpkins that we were assuming that they were, they had, they had a little bit more wherewithal, but 
Dan was talking about, uh, you know, this being like a, a, a socialist security state, but, you know, I wouldn't doubt that a lot of religious sects, if they were in complete control of a region like this, wouldn't behave very similarly. I mean, the, you know, the, the most damning thing here about the Mycogenians is the fact that maybe they knew what Harry and Doors were planning. They allowed them to go through with yeah. it. And then they said, aha, yeah. now we're going to execute you. You know, when, you know, when they could have stop them at the door and said you know if you go any further right we're going i mean to they, they, they warned them away. not to do these things and yet they could have said look we we know you're planning on doing this don't think we don't yeah it does look a little like a, a kind of a, a trap that they set oh yeah entirely like what honestly i i don't understand what is the point of setting this trap like what if you if you really don't want that space to be violated right why not just have some master come up the day before to Harry and say, we know you're planning this. That's our secret yeah. space. Just don't go in. I don't know. I, I, I guess it's a little bit of this sort of like, like this, just their, their pride makes them say, you know, well, we'll, we'll freely let you violate us, but then we'll get our revenge on you. I, I can see people actually behaving that way, by the way. But it, it's no more yeah. explicable for it being real and, and not fiction if, if we're proposing that somebody does behave that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and maybe, maybe uh, I was just very charitable to Asimov. Maybe I can be less charitable to Asimov now and say that it's, it's kind of in the interest of narrative causality, right? We, we, we needed that for the story. We needed that tension. If they had just come up to them and yeah. said, hey, we know you're planning to do this. Don't do it. And they went, oh, okay then that would have been maybe a less interesting story. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, obviously. Right. So, yeah, I think. Honestly, I wouldn't have gotten to see the robot. Okay. So I think, right. This is, this is one of those things where it's like, there's, there's a real answer and then there's an in-world answer. Maybe the, the real, the real answer is just that. Yes. Like as much, like this is what works Re reading forward and not stopping to think in reverse. Like this certainly makes it a, a more exciting, interesting plot development. Like the only in-world answer that I could come up with, which is interesting in itself, to me at least, is that Sunmaster was actually hoping for this outcome because he wanted this chit to trade to the uh, Empire, right? Which is sort of what he comes up with at the end is aha, now that I can, I'll sentence yeah. you to the death penalty and maybe I'll trade you back to the emperor for some privileges. So if so, Sunmaster 14 is a devious, <laughs> just a devious bastard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I do have to say that, that the kind of uh, cheddar humming ex machina that we get at the end, I mean, I, I almost feel like he's literally being lowered on ropes, you know, with wings, like he just appears, he just pops up. At the end. Yeah, yeah, and and then he, yeah, he basically comes down. He says oh, Pascal's sure. wager. Well, but and, we know why. We, we know like, why okay, that that's not to spoil, but <laughs> we've spoiled it a million times. But Cheddar is, let's just say, extremely persuasive uh, when he needs to be. Yes. I was gonna say, so here's the thing about the book. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff that doesn't add up, but a thing about the book that just 
Harry's looking for something to build, uh, you know, to build the science of, of, of psychohistory around. And he's like, oh, this is useless. It's nothing but a dissertation on governmental activity and, and ex explanations for why they've taken these, taken these decisions. And I can't use any of this. It's like, how is this not exactly, exactly the sort of thing that you were looking for? These are like the direct results of the, yeah, you know, this, no, you're uh, right. And, and yet, although he does say in the book, you know, the book has nothing in it. He does get out of the book that they, they think they're descended from Aurora, that, that there are humaniform robots, that there might be one still there. I mean, yep. he actually gets a lot out of the book. <laughs> yes. And that's just by flipping so, through So, yeah, it. that book does a lot of duty there. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do think that um, I do criticize this book a lot. And uh, I just can't seem to stop because... It, you know, it, it, it just, it's just not as kind of interesting as, as the, you know, the original foundation books were, it, it just really feels like he has an agenda here. Asimov, I mean, he has a couple of agenda points and he's got some wood to chop and he's chopping and chopping and chopping and we're watching him chop the wood. And uh, it's just not as much fun, but there are, there are some fun moments, but it's just not as much as as the uh, as the original books, and I guess it's it's hard to ask for that. Having you know, writing something uh, how many years? Thirty, almost forty years after the original, or in some cases, you know, more than forty yep. years. And and uh, I, I guess this was well, yeah, this was this what, was late eighties, right? and and then there's you know going to one more book, Forward the Foundation, mm -hmm. which was even later, and I guess was published posthumously. Um. And so he's winding down, yeah. you know, and he's got some stuff he, he wants to get out of the way. And I'm sure he was under a lot of uh, he was being nagged and nudged all the time by the publishers and the fans to continue and having written the sequels now give us the prequels. Uh, but it, it's just not, you know, foundation feels like I've got something new and fresh and original I want to talk about, even if it was some sort of recapitulation of, rising, you know, the, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It, it was still fun and interesting this just feels like i got some stuff i need to say and you sit in that chair and i'm going to say it to you <laughs> yeah we've moved on we've, we've maybe moved on to, from academia to his feelings about the creationists maybe <laughs> <laughs> well one thing that does uh come in the fun column in this little episode is um doors i doors has been with us for a while now but i really am enjoying her behavior uh, especially in the process of sneaking, sneaking up into the sacratorium, you know, she's, Harry is like, uh, okay, Doris, you stay home. This is too dangerous for you. And she kind of like almost laughs a little bit and says, uh, Harry, I'm not the one in danger here. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she's like, let, let me take you firmly by the hand. Uh, in a um, almost hydraulic-like grip <laughs> and, and escort you through this in a way that will minimize danger to you. You know, I, I, <laughs> I just love this character of this. I mean, she's not, she's not his wife yet, uh, but she is this fierce protector in a way that really cuts against the grain of a lot of um, the way that we see women in, in Asimov, right? You know, we do get active women like uh, Beta Durrell, for instance, but, but, and I won't say that the portrayal of uh, Doors is perfect either, but 
you know, there is an overwhelming sense of her, her strength and, and her self, her, her determination to be, to fill the role of protector. Yeah. Right. Um, we got that uh, as well before with the journey to the upper side uh, at right. Streeling University. And it, it comes back here and it's just more fleshed in a little bit. And I like that side of her. I think she's a, a great and interesting character that way. Well, that's good that you like that because when they go to the next stop to doll, we're going to get a lot more of that. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Which is going to be fun, actually. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to come back to the fun parts of, of what's going on here. And I, the, the doll stories, um, which we're going to do next, it is kind of fun. I mean, it, it is mm -hmm. another journey to a different various very stereotyped part of of trantor there's going to be some gratuitous nudity going on for some reason you know like some real sweaty naked people <laughs> trying to get everybody interested in the next in the next section and mustaches mustaches, mustaches. Porn stashes. let us yes. let us let us be clear on what those mustaches are and and more weirdness i mean more weird stuff it's there's there's he certainly as much as i criticize him he didn't hold back on the weird and doll mm -hmm. is in its way, every bit as weird as Mycogen is. So we have that to look forward to. And, and lots more doors. Doors really taking an active role in keeping Harry safe mm -hmm. with knives. <laughs> I am looking forward to those knives. Joseph hasn't read that yet, have you? I have not read that yet. No, oh, okay. So yeah. So something to look forward to. A little taste of what's coming up. Yeah. I'm I'm not, I'm not sure that pitch would have said, "Oh, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to get to this as soon as possible." But, <laughs> but sweaty naked people with knives isn't enough for you. What do you, what do you uh, do? Well, yeah, you throw on the porn mustaches and, <laughs> and, and, the, uh, and the porn <laughs> Yeah, I, I do want to say one more thing about Doors, which I sort of regret, is that <clears throat> Doors has got this backstory, right? She grew up on a planet called Cinna. Mm -hmm. uh, she studied history. She's a historian. I just find myself wondering how much of that is real, how much of that is true, how much of that is a cover story, and what is her real backstory. And unfortunately, this time we're not going to get a lot of that. And we're, you know, sometimes leaving things unsaid isn't better. Mm. I wish through this book and the next one that we got more of her backstory because I think it's got to be really interesting. And we never really find it out, unfortunately. Yeah, and it would be, well, I guess the timeline is off, but it, it certainly would have been interesting to see her in the, the Apple TV series in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, they really did cut that out. Or or it starts too late. Yeah, you're right, the timeline's off. It yeah. starts too late for her to be involved. Well, I mean, they, they play fast and loose with the timeline. So, they do, you know, course. what the hell. I mean, they brought Rach in. Who We're going to meet Rach, the character of Rach, in Doll. That's where Rach comes from. Hmm. And that's where Harry uh, Harry first encounters little Rach. Somebody we we only see child Rach once or twice in the TV show, uh, but uh, child Rach is a major character here in in the next uh, in the next section. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who watched the show and wondered who is this Rach guy, we're going to find out who Rach is. I wonder whether it's going to feel connected to the Rach we saw on the TV show. I don't I don't think so. I think it's a very different Rach. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we only see Rach in child form in this book. So, right. you know, we, we saw a glimpse of that flashback of child Rach right. uh, in the library on, the, on season one. But I think, you know, maybe, maybe when we get to forward the foundation, we'll see some more points of commonality. But he will have the porn stash in forward the foundation. He, he will very proudly 
proudly wear the Dalian porn stash. So I, yes. I think that's good. You don't want to give up your whole background just because you've been adopted by uh, a scientist. <laughs> your heritage. All right. Well, I think we've, we've probably covered it for this week. Um, There's something else I want to bring up, oh, actually. Good. Uh, yes. Just from the, you know, the perspective of whether or not some of this is Asimov being an Asimov apologist. Hmm. I'm not so sexist. Look at these other societies that are far more sexist than I ever was kind of argument right um but we get through the uh we get through the hair incident yes and you know harry immediately goes back tells doors and is creeped out by the entire incident mm. you know, so there's this all this unwelcome there, there's all this unwelcome and and weird and sexual attention and he's creeped out by the whole thing and that maybe is a huge, a, a huge piece of a uh, huge lack of self-awareness there. Oh yeah. I think that's true. And also the other thing that's happening throughout this, which we haven't talked about is that Harry is getting hornier and hornier for doors. <laughs> yeah, There's the bet true. that he makes, but that's not the only thing. I mean, he's constantly talking about how she looks and, and, and uh, you know, he's how great it would be to sleep in the same bed and how distracting everything. I mean, like, that's just, and I totally uh, would have put my hand on your thigh. Yeah. Right. I would have done it. Yeah. yeah. Can I do it now? Like, like, yeah. So I'm not sure how that squares with Asimov being an Asimov apologist. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and keep in mind that when he was writing these books, he had already written. So he had already written the sequels and then uh, to this, and he had also already written the sequels to the robot stories. So he had written uh, Robots of Dawn and Robots and Empire in the early 1980s. And as I never get tired of talking about the romance between Lige Bailey and Daniil Oliva, the robot, is just gets more and more explicit over time. You know, I mean, to the point where in, in Robots of Dawn, there is a human woman who takes a robot who looks just like Daniil as her husband. Spoilers for, for Robots of Dawn, for those who haven't read it, and who then also has kind of a sexual experience with Elijah. And if you want to draw the dots, you know, connect the dots, it, it, it often felt like Asimov just was too uncomfortable with male Elijah having a sexual relationship with male presenting Daniil. And yet, all of this other stuff seems to stand in for that. And uh, so he was already kind of going there with, with that stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how that squares with all of this. Someday we have to put together some sort of timeline of like, what was Asimov thinking in 1983, <laughs> 84, 88, 89? Like what, what is going on here? But it's undeniable. I mean, Asimov, you know, he, he explicitly says that Elijah and Daniil love each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it doesn't always have to be about sex. And yet right. there's all that sex around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if Asimov was self-aware about all this stuff either. <laughs> Never had the chance to ask him. Would have been nice. Like, what was going on? What's going on with Daniil and Elijah? What, what the? <laughs> it's hard to believe somebody didn't ask him. And because we know that Daniil, you know, at least in the TV series, changes gender. I mean, does a robot have a gender? Like, why why would it it's a machine i mean or, or well, it could it could i mean well it could right i mean they okay so a thing that i i believe that i learned from asimov and okay. in particular with the caves of steel is the the difference between an android and a humaniform robot 
right? Robots are mechanical. Androids are artificial beings who could well be, uh, who could well be biological. He kind of undercuts that here. But So where would you put Daniil in that? Is he an android well, or a humaniform robot? Well, they made a, okay, thinking back to what I, what I remember, it's been years since I've read Robots of Dawn, but they made an absolute, they were absolutely clear that this was not an android, this was a humaniform robot. I mean, I think that's why that distinction is there. Huh. But if, you know, if these creatures are, are, are biological in some sense, why not? You know, why wouldn't they necessarily? I mean, if you're, if you're trying to replicate a human being, would you leave out sexuality? Would you leave out gender? Right. Well, they clearly didn't. I mean, you know, a gender who marries Gladio or, or is Gladio's husband, you know, male presents as male is, is um, anatomically correct, let's say, and performs the, the role of a man. And it's only when we, we expand into the TV show that we get the switch of Daniil mm-hmm. from male to female. And so that opens up, a, it just opens up a whole bunch of discussion like this, which is very interesting in which, unfortunately, Asimov is not able to participate in. Yeah. You know, it, it's just got me wondering. Maybe, unfortunately. What uh, in actual real AI programming, if, if AI programmers have gotten to think yet about what, would it, what it would mean to program in gender uh, to an artificial consciousness. Uh, I assume right now people have already gotten a fairly good handle on the way that men and women, or let's say male and female ladder patterns of language use okay. are, are expressed differently in language processing. Uh, but I, I don't know if, uh, if people have gone beyond that. If anyone in our audience happens to know, drop us a line, because I'm curious. I mean, I think it goes back to part of when we were talking to Paul Levinson, you know, that we are so far away from robots who have that kind of awareness yeah. of the world around them and themselves that it, it's, you know, you can program, you can write a program that presents male or female, like you say, mm-hmm. yeah. language use or whatever, right. but it's very, very far from having an internal subjective right. sense of, of yeah. gender. Absolutely. But it's a, it is a fascinating question. There, there's a lot of questions like that about yeah. what an artificial intelligence would really be like if it was really intelligent. Mm-hmm. Right. That and, we, and, and, you know, would gender be an aspect of something that, you know, has a head of physical presence versus an artificial intelligence that only existed in this program? Well, that is for like a whole other podcast, you know, yeah. we, <laughs> because we, we, we need to, to talk about that for about 100, 200 hours before we get anywhere. <laughs> well, anything else before we uh, before we wrap up for this week? We need to do something interesting. We need to, you know, like we're getting bogged down in these stories here. We need to like, you know, we need to juice it up somehow. More nudity. I think that's what we need. More nudity. Well, we get that okay. next time. Yeah. <laughs> in celebration, next time we can we can podcast in the nude. Oh. For the benefit you, of all our listeners. Yeah, you I, know, you know, a, a, a few minutes ago, Dan, you made me think it's, it's almost a shame that we aren't an audio, aren't a you know, a video podcast because of the look on your face when you were saying something. <laughs> but. Yeah, no, we don't, we don't, we don't need that. If we're <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next time we're going to get introduced to Dahl and the, the people of Dahl and the porn stashes and all of that. And uh, hopefully that's enough to look forward to. So we should say goodbye and wrap up here. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, Subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. 
You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.